Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email. We send this out once a week. It's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy. Good morning, everyone. If you weren't here earlier, my name is Ross Breitkreitz. I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. And yes, the rumors are true. We are starting a brand new series. Okay? Woo! That's right. You should be excited. So, starting a brand new sermon series, I feel honored that Peter has uh, given me the honor and the blessing of beginning this sermon series for you guys. But before we jump into it this morning, here's what we're going to do. I want to read for you guys an introductory, um, like an intro that one commentator wrote for this book that we are going to be shifting into. Okay, so I'm going to read it. It's going to help set the table for our series, for our study. So what I'm going to need from you guys is you guys need to come with me on a journey back to 60 AD to the city of Jerusalem. That's where we are going. So here is what this commentator wrote. The trumpets of the temple sounded long and loud. It was the daily summons for the evening sacrifice. The officiating priest hastened up the broad steps leading to the outer courts, and from all over Jerusalem, people flocked to the temple at the sound of these trumpets. Through the outer courts, they moved towards the holy temple, looking with pride and admiration at marble walls, gold and silver gates, gleaming ornaments, cedar roofs, splendid hangings of purple and scarlet, all the while taking in the fragrant perfumes of the altar of incense. The sacrificing priest approaches the altar, now surrounded by a crowd, and after slaying the appointed animal in accordance with the law, presents it to the Lord. The fire burns, the smoke ascends, and the sacrifice is consumed. And standing somewhere in the crowd is a Jew. Born of the tribe of Levi and the house of Aaron, by every right a priest, but he has become a Christian. This splendid temple with its gorgeous rituals and traditions that reach back centuries in his family are no longer for him, yet he finds it tugging at his heart. He knows this temple and its functions were only a shadow of the fullness that's been revealed in Christ. But right now, in this moment, it is so real, the rituals so authoritative, he begins to wonder. This epistle was written for him. Meanwhile, in a house off an alley, a few blocks away from the massive walls of Jerusalem, there is another Jew. In his home, there's a prized possession, a copy of books of Moses and of the prophets and the Psalms, which have been in his family for years, and he knows most of it by heart. But lately, he's been reading it again. He's begun to wonder, can the blood of bulls and goats really take away sins? What value are all these rituals? Do they point to something else? Could it possibly be Calvary. 
He goes from scroll to scroll, finding in his scriptures unexplained ceremonies, unsatisfied longings, unfulfilled prophecies, and he wonders, are the Christians correct when they say that the Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled scriptures such as these? Deciding to stake his all on that despised and rejected Jesus, he becomes a Christian, makes his faith known, and is cut off from his people. His outraged parents disinherit him, cast him out of the family and outside the camp. They hold a funeral and consider him dead. His heart aches. He aches for his loved ones and the close-knit family ties of the Jewish faith, missing the cheer and comfort of home, missing the rich rituals in which he had been reared. He, too, begins to wonder if he should possibly go back. This epistle was written for him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine living in a time where your faith, and not just your faith, but like your doctrine to its core, the core primary tenets that you would uphold as a Christian were under scrutiny, under attack. The very things that you had lived believing your entire life about God and about worship and about just Christian living, which is a more probably common way to word it for us here this morning. Imagine if all of that was under attack or being threatened. Imagine if changing your faith or your view or your world um, outlook came with being ostracized by your family. What if it came at the cost of seeing everything that you knew change? Like your career, your relationships, how you celebrated holidays, how you dressed, the way you interacted socially, the way that you ate your food. Could you imagine? Or perhaps you have wrestled. Maybe you embraced faith at one point and now you are struggling to see how it fits into your life. Maybe you are at a crossroads in your life where you are feeling tempted to return to some things that at one point you begged to walk away from. Maybe you are simply a person who has wondered, like some of the people represented in this introduction, who is Jesus? What's, what's the big to-do about Jesus? What does the Bible really say about Jesus? What do Christians truly believe? Or how does the Old and New Testament really work together uh, if they do it all? If you can identify with any of these things, the book we are about to begin was written for you. So will you grab your Bibles, because you're going to need them, and will you turn with me to the book of Hebrews? This morning, we begin our sermon series with message number one, chapter one in the book of Hebrews, and it is going to be a message that I have simply titled, Only Begotten. Now, I want to just cover some history and some facts about this book before we begin reading, because if you've heard me preach before, um, maybe you're familiar with this about me, I love being able to, to the best of our ability, understand some of the context going into what we're reading. I think it's really important, if we can, to know perhaps a bit about the author, what was happening in the life of who was writing, or what the intended audience was going through when they would have received this letter originally. So, in hopes of helping us better understand the original context, the original audience, and better hopefully being able to see 
how applicable this letter really is to us here and now today in our culture. Uh, I just want to go over a few things. So if you are a note taker, get your pens ready. Pens at the ready, because this may be for you. So some facts about Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written only 30 to 40 years after Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. All right, just 30 to 40 years after Christ's death and resurrection. And here's the thing, I'm not going to spend a long time talking about this. We don't know who the author is. Okay, we do not know who the author of Hebrews is. Many scholars have taken to um, surmise and write theses about who they think it is, but the smartest ones usually end their you know, little rundown by saying, but this isn't like a hill I would die on. So, it's agreed that no one knows who definitively wrote Hebrews, but what scholars do agree on is that it was likely written before 70 AD. Okay, it was written before 70 AD, and I'm going to explain why they believe that and they hold to that. And that is because what we will discover in the book of Hebrews is that the temple, so you saw a picture there, we were just talking about it, temple worship, temple practice, the temple in general is a, a very prominent uh, topic in the book of Hebrews. All right, so the Hebrew author knew this is a very important thing to my audience, so I'm going to discuss it a fair bit. So why we know this book was likely written before 70 AD then is because it was in 70 AD that that temple was destroyed. So that photo you saw is of what is called Herod's temple, the second temple built in Jerusalem. And in 70 AD, it was completely destroyed. So what happened was, a uh, quick background on that historic event, in 66 AD, the Jews rebelled against the Roman Empire and they actually took back their city of Jerusalem and they would maintain control of it for those, is that four, four years? I suck at math. I don't care. Um, for however many years that is. And so I think it's four. And then in 70 AD, the empire strikes back. Not the Star Wars movie, although that's the best one. Um, but in 70 AD, the Roman Empire uh, lays siege to the city. They overtake it and they destroy Jerusalem and the temple. In fact, all that remains of that temple today is what is commonly known as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. That's it. That is all that remains from that second temple. So that temple has never been rebuilt. The Jewish people to this day are awaiting and longing for the rebuilding of their third temple. And many, many Christians are still also awaiting the rebuilding of the third temple as well. Because uh, it is part of Christian end times theology for a lot of people. So they are still awaiting the rebuilding of this third temple. And also, uh, not only is there records of this on in Jewish history, there's actually records of this in Roman history as well, because not long after they conquered Jerusalem and tore down the temple, Rome erected what is known as the Ark or Arch of Titus to commemorate their conquering of Jerusalem in 70 AD. I actually had the opportunity to see this when I was in Rome. And another weird, interesting little fact is at some point back in history, there was a local ban put in place 
where Jews were not allowed to walk underneath this ark, and that was not rescinded until 1948. Okay? The crazy thing is, is about some of the things that took place at this point in history around 70 AD are still having an impact in the lives of the Jewish people to this very day. So, all of this to say, because of the temple's strong presence in this letter, it's a, it's a common topic, and the fact that it was destroyed in 70 AD, many scholars just believe they wouldn't have talked about it with so much direct, they wouldn't have given it so much direct attention, right, if it had already been destroyed. So, 70 AD is before, is when this letter was written before. Now, with that timeline, we know a couple other things that were taking place at this point in the New Testament narrative. We know at this point the Apostle Paul had already completed his three missionary journeys. So Paul, actually, if, this, if the letter was written later in 60, Paul was either in Rome in prison or he had already been murdered. But what we know is that the Christian faith had been spreading. Now, I typed it into the Google machine because I was curious, and I didn't calculate like all his trips or even what it would be like to take a boat. I was just like, hey, Google, how far would it be from Jerusalem to Rome? Tell me, most direct route. This guy traveled over 3,500 kilometers. 3,500 kilometers. And if that doesn't land, that would be the equivalent of us driving, and it was a lot harder than driving, from Vancouver to Dallas, planting churches everywhere in between. So, once again, we know Christianity had been spreading extremely fast. Another detail we're going to see about our author, we may not know who exactly it is, but we do know some about them. They had a strong knowledge of the Old Testament. A very strong knowledge of the Old Testament. Um, I actually believe... I'm going to make the argument this morning that Hebrews quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. Now, not in number, okay? In number, Hebrews is third. So, in the New Testament, Romans quotes the Old Testament 58 times. And then Matthew quotes it 45 times. And then Hebrews quotes it 42 times. So, close behind Matthew. But... When you compare that to the size of each of these letters, Hebrews um, dedicates a larger percentage of its letter to the Old Testament. So it is 14%. 14% of Hebrews is quotations from the Old Testament. We're actually going to see a number of those this morning as we work our way through chapter 1. So, quick recap. We do not know who the author is. We know it was written before 70 A.D., we know Christianity had spread very quickly, and the author knew the Old Testament and was clearly using the Old Testament to communicate to people who held it in a very high regard and who lived according to its religious practices. So because of this, I mean, the title of the letter gives it away. We know who the audience was. It was the Hebrews. It was the Jewish people. But most scholars would put them into kind of three categories. They're like, yes, but there was three categories of Jew that it was specifically targeted to. And those three categories are this. Number one, Jewish people who had fully converted to Christianity. So they grew up uh, with Old Testament practices, but now they had fully committed to Christianity. Or there was Jewish people who were curious about Christianity, or as one scholar put it, intellectually persuaded, but not spiritually committed, which I think I have a lot of friends in that camp. 
You know, the friends were like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I believe that Jesus was a good dude or maybe a prophet, but I'm not like bought in fully. So they're kind of like, that's one of the camps as well. And then the last one is Jewish unbelievers who were not convinced, but had experienced some exposure to Christianity. So maybe they had like just dipped their toe into the shallow end and they're like, this isn't the worst thing. So I'll maybe check it out a little more. So what that means for us though is this. This book is extremely extremely applicable to us today because we may not have grown up following the old testament but every single one of us is in one of these camps we are either a professing christian we are maybe one of those people who is convinced but not committed or you're here and you are genuinely curious about jesus well hebrews has something for you and it's my prayer that no matter what camp you might consider yourself to be in by the end of even just our message this morning, but ultimately the series, you are going to see and experience the reality that Jesus is above all, before all, and over all things. Now, without further ado, let us dive into Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. We're just going to hit the first four verses to get started. In the past, God has spoken to our ancestors through the prophets, and in many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The Son is greater than the prophets. This is the statement that our author comes out of the gate and leads with. It's a big one, and we're going to get into that. But first, I want to talk about uh, the, the fact that this letter begins unlike almost all other New Testament letters. And you may have actually already caught on to this. See, because with the exception, and I will put this little disclaimer um, I did scan through my Bible and look at this last night. If one snuck away on me, I am sorry, but I'm pretty sure this is correct. With the exception of only the four Gospels, 1 John, and Revelations, every other New Testament letter begins by um, sharing who the writer is. Every one except for those five that I just listed. And Hebrews. Hebrews does not do that. All the other letters will begin with like Paul or Peter. Some of them even begin with the title of elder. And they mostly do this because that is then going to give credence and authority to what is then being said, right? It's kind of like the stamp and the signature. This is the authority who says all of these things below. Now, here's the thing. I'm not sure. Let me just scroll back. My translation goes, in the past, God spoke. That's how mine started. By hands. Does yours kind of start like that, your translation? Yeah? Well, here's the thing. In the original Greek, the chapter actually begins with the word God. 
So in many ways, in the original language, the original author begins this letter the same way as all the other ones, by saying, here is the author, here who's the one who fully, ultimately gives and brings authority to what you are about to read. All the things, all the claims that you're about to read, the author of them, this is God. This is how this book opens up, and I really want us to try and grasp the weight that these words would have had for a fully committed Jewish audience. Like, can you imagine to read this letter and hear someone say, the son is greater than the prophets? That would have been either uh, amazing or amazingly offensive. There was kind of no middle ground. Now, a couple things that I want us to know, and, and you guys probably already know this, is that the prophets were very highly regarded by the Jewish people. And one of the reasons that they were so highly regarded is because according to Jewish tradition, they believed that the period of prophecy had actually ended. They believed that the period of prophecy ended with Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So back in the Old Testament, when the temple was destroyed the first time, when Nebuchadnezzar came down and he sacked the city and he destroyed the temple in 586 BC, so this is roughly around the same time as Esther, around the same time as Daniel, they believe that from that point, with the destruction of that temple, with, I believe, Malachi being the last, that the gifting and the act of prophecy had, been, had ended, had ceased, or some scholars would say has paused. So their prophets were held in very, very high regard. So for them to say something like this, like the sun is greater, that is a very powerful statement. Hebrews is trying to communicate that Jesus is greater than these prophets. Now, here's something else I would like us to see, is that, um, and this will point out and lean to Jesus' superiority. The Hebrew word for prophet is navi, N-A-V-I. And that's the word that we translate to get prophet from. But it literally means spokesperson or mouthpiece for God. A spokesperson. If I am a spokesperson, I am not the thing. I am a representative of the thing, right? Does that make sense? Like, if I was a spokesperson for Wendy's, I'm not Wendy, right? I am just a spokesperson on behalf of Wendy. These people, by definition, were just spokespersons on behalf of God. And not to, like, real, I'm not trying to minimize them. All that much but here's the truth about that this is the reality of how these spokespeople had worked throughout the Old Testament to give these people a revelation of God all right we know this that through these spokespeople through these mouthpieces the Jewish people essentially had received everything that they had been given in the Old Testament and everything that they knew about God so the Torah the temple the sacrificial system all their Old Testament writings essentially came through these spokespeople their whole knowledge of God had come through. This is periodic, partial, and different prophecies, right? So it was just like broken up over time. Never just this full revelation of everything that God is. And they received these things through visions, dreams, symbols, angels, and encounters. And in hopes of trying to communicate 
who God is and what he's like and his character, they communicated it through laws, religious practices, history, poetry, and prophecy. But now, in the opening statements of this book, Hebrews claims God has spoken again. He has spoken again, which at this point would have been for the first time in over 600 years. God has spoken again, but this time it was all at once. This time it was better. This time it was with clarity. And this time it wasn't through a spokesperson. It was through his son. It wasn't through a representative. It was by himself. We need to understand how bold these claims would have been for a Jewish person to read or to hear. It would be the equivalent of someone coming on stage and professing there is someone on par, nigh, better than Jesus. Some of you, your hair probably stood up on the back of your necks just now when I said that. This is how it would have impacted the Jewish people. And just to be clear, I don't believe that. That's not true. I'm going to preach more about that coming up, just to be clear. But that's how offensive this would have been. So the kind of attitude would have been, okay, bold claim, back it up. And he does. So we see in these opening verses seven different traits that are attributed to the Son. And we're going to go through them now, and we're going to talk about and see very quickly how all seven traits in uh, correlation to the prophets specifically put Jesus in a much higher seat than they ever had been or ever will be. So these seven traits attributed to the Son are He's the heir of all things. He's the maker of the universe. It's the radiance of God's glory and exact representation of his being. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the purifier of our sins. He's seated at the right hand of majesty. He's superior to the angels. So, how do they make Jesus greater than the prophets and greater than angels? And why does that matter? Number one, Jesus is the heir of all things. How does this set him apart? I mean, really just by the title alone, like the heir of all things, like that's pretty phenomenal. But in contrast to the prophets, right? How does that differ? Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and you're familiar with the prophets, you would know this, that not only did they prophesy, but they had also, many of them, almost always been given promises. They had received promises from God, promises for land, for family, for the future, for things that God was going to do. And Hebrews will actually go on to explain that many of these people will die without ever seeing these things come to fruition. They never got to actually be heir of some things. In contrast, Jesus is going to be the heir of all things. There is nothing that will not be under Jesus' rule and reign upon his throne. There is nothing that was not put under his authority when he conquered death. Jesus is the heir of all things. And Psalms 2 verse 8 would speak to this, using it as a prophetic utterance over Jesus. And it says, I, God, will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Jesus is the inheritor of all things. Everything in the created order belongs to him. And a little caveat 
the best part, well, not the best part, but a phenomenal part about that is if you are a Christian, you are co-heirs with Christ. Pretty unbelievable to consider. Romans 8 tells us, verse 16 and 17, describes that God's children are all co-heirs with Christ. Number two, he is the creator of all things. Hebrews goes on to tell us that Christ is not just the ultimate recipient of all things, but he is the originator of all things. Now, just to be clear, some of your translations, I'm not sure what you're all reading out there, but some translations say creator of the world. Okay? Actually, more accurately, that word means the ages. It means the ages. So it doesn't just mean the world, how like we would think of the world if we read it, but it means like everything for all time, for forever. Christ created not only the physical earth, but also time, space, energy, and every variety of matter. That is why in John chapter 1, verse 3, the Bible tells us all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So, in contrast to the prophets, well, the prophets kind of gave the, helped introduce the people, the Jewish people, to the life they, they, that they knew, right? To the lifestyle that they knew. They had helped introduce them to laws and cultures and lifestyle, but Jesus has given them life, period. He is so much greater than the prophets. Number three, Sorry, number three, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Now, if you are once again familiar with the Old Testament and familiar with these prophets, you will know one thing about them. They ain't perfect. They is not perfect. Neither is that English. So, let's just look at their, their most prominent prophet of all, Moses. Dude was a murderer. Okay, what we know about the prophets is that they spoke out what God was like. They lived lives somewhat like, hey, do, do as I say, but not as I do. Because they were not perfect. They were flawed, fallen, imperfect men, unlike Jesus. In the complete contrast, we have Jesus who, my NIV says, he was the exact representation of his being, his being God. But I really like the way the NLT actually words this verse. It says it this way, that he expresses the very character of God. I love that, both in word and in deed. In fact, the Greek word that they're trying to capture here is character. That's the Greek word. The only thing is C-H-A-R-A-C. RC is a K in the Greek. That's it. It is literally the exact same spelling in all other ways. And this is what it means. This is the definition. The exact expression of any person or thing, the precise reproduction in every respect. Jesus is the precise reproduction of God in every single respect. That is why he stated, John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So much greater than the prophets. Number four, sustainer of all things. We'll do this one quickly. 
Contrast this with the prophets. Well, essentially, when they died, their work had finished. They were done. Jesus' work, yes, all things have been put under him because he conquered the grave, but he still is sustaining all things. He's still working in our lives. He is still presenting prayer requests on our behalf. He is still so active in holding everything together. He is not inactive. That's why Colossians chapter 1, verse 7, 17 sorry, says, By him all things are held together. Number five, the purifier of our sins. The prophets could not purify and deal with our sins. They could not deal with the sins of the people. All they could do was point them out. Like, that was it. All they could do is like shake their finger angrily and hope people would repent and call them to repentance. But they ultimately could not deal with the sins at the end of the day. Unlike Jesus, who comes and dies for our sins. And it blows my mind, because like the prophets, right, they, they would get attacked and killed and people hated them because they'd be like, you're such a sinner, you need to repent. You did all these bad things and God wants you to repent. And it was good, like they needed to hear that. But then it's funny to me, because Jesus, there's been no one more qualified to do that, right? To like, he could walk in here right now and be like, you suck and you suck. And he's like justified because he's perfect, right? Like he could walk into my room and be like, you did this and you did that. There's been no one more qualified ever in history to call out, hold a magnifying glass, circle our sin with a bright highlighter. And he didn't. He just comes and dies for our sin. He straps it onto his back and takes it to the cross, becoming the once and for all sacrifice, the pure, spotless lamb dealing with our sin when he willingly laid down his life. What a contrast. That's why Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27 says, He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Number six, he is seated at the right hand of majesty. When Moses gave the law to the people, his work was not done. Their work was not done. I think he just piled more work on them than ever before, right? They just received years of work. There was no sitting down. Now they had years of rules and regulations that they needed to follow, daily sacrifices, restrictions on food. This is when your holidays are. This is how you observe those holidays. This is how you enter the temple. This is when you can enter the temple. This is what you need to sacrifice. This is what you need to atone for. This is how many days you need to take off to atone for that thing. It was exhausting. There was no sitting down until Jesus came and he proclaims, it is finished. Also, another thing about this statement is that the right hand is seen as a place of honor and status throughout the biblical narrative. So this is an affirmation that Jesus is seated with equal status next to the Father. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Number seven, he's superior to the angels. Now I'm going to let the rest of Hebrews 1 bring this home for us this morning uh, because our writer is going to 
use the Old Testament in numerous ways to contrast Jesus to the angels. I will just pause quickly and say, and that's a quote from, and that's a quote from. All right? So, jumping into verse 5, going all the way to verse 14. For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Psalm 2, verse 7. Or again, I will be your father and he will be my son. That's 2 Samuel 7, 14 and 1 Chronicles 17, 13. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Deuteronomy 32, 43. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits or winds and his servants flames of fire. Psalm 104, verse 4. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companion by anointing you with the oil of joy. Psalm 45, 6, 7. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. Psalm 102, 25-27. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Psalm 110, verse 11. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So why? Why then does our author open up the letter this way? He opens up by saying, The Son is greater than the prophets. And now why does he dedicate so much time to explaining how and why the Son is so much greater than the angels? Well, that's because the angels were held in extremely high regard by the Jewish people. First off, the angels aided God's people throughout the Old Testament in, in helping guide them and lead them. We even had some angelic encounters in our last series in the book of Exodus. And, and the New Testament will tell us in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, and Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, says that the law was given to the people through angels. So the angels were held in very high regard. And not to mention, now if you remember our last series in Exodus, we spent a great amount of time studying the tabernacle, right? Studying the tabernacle and the design for the tabernacle. Now, in case you're wondering, uh, the tabernacle is more like the mobile version of that temple that you saw. Okay? So that temple was uh, a bigger extended version of what they had been given with the design for that tabernacle that we studied in Exodus. And if you may remember that in that tabernacle, inside the Holy of Holies, where God's presence sat, hovering over the mercy seat, it was believed, by in the Ark of the Covenant, above the Ark of the Covenant, there was graven images cast out of gold, the only images that would rest in the presence of God forever, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365. Do you know what they were? They were angels. They were cherubim. The only thing allowed in the presence of God, day in, day out, non-stop, was angels. And now this author 
comes out of the gate and says, guess what? Someone greater than your prophets and someone even greater than the angels has come and has spoken. And his name is Jesus. We need to understand the weight that these messages would have had for the Jewish people. This book absolutely comes out and begins with an aggressive defense of who Jesus truly is and how the Jewish people and how we need to see him and understand him to be. Like, think about it. If angels stay in God's presence 24-7 and that's how they viewed him, how much more intimately does Jesus know God? It is amazing. I'm so excited for this series and I hope you guys are too. I'm going to get ready to wrap things up this morning, but before I do, I just want to actually ask you guys to jump back to verse 5 really quickly. Jump back to verse 5. Get your, get your eyes on that. And I'm not sure what your translation says or uses, but in some translations, this verse actually can read this way. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Does anyone's translation say that? Yeah? I love that. Now, that's not really a super common word, right? Uh, I would actually maybe even venture to say that if I hadn't grown up in the church, I probably would have never heard or used the word begotten in my whole life. I have never used it outside of quoting another Bible verse that uses that word that is very common to the Christian church. John 3.16, right? This verse has echoes of John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life this is a powerful statement that i don't want us to overlook so as we're preparing to wrap things up this morning i actually want to read something from one of my favorite books and it's from a book called mere christianity it's written by a man named c.s lewis and he actually talks about this exact topic of being begotten, which I think speaks perfectly to the way that Jesus is superior to all. Here's what he says. We do not use the words begetting or begotten much in modern English, but everyone still knows what they mean. To beget is to become the father of or to create or to make. This is the difference. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies, a beaver begets little beavers, and a bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you make something, you make something of a different kind than yourself. A bird makes a nest, a beaver a dam, a man a wireless headset, or he may make something more like himself, say a statue. If a man is clever enough a carver, he may make a statue which is very like a man, but of course, not a real man, it only looks like one. Now, what God begets is God, just as what man begets. What God creates is not God, just as what man makes is not man. That is why men are not sons of God in the same sense that Christ is. They may be like God in certain ways, but they are not the things of the same kind. They're more like statues, more like pictures. A statue is a shape of a man, but is not alive in the same way a man has, in a sense, the shape or likeness of God, but he has not got the kind of life that God has. So, therefore, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. 
We are God's creation and handiwork. This world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues. And there is a rumor going around the shop that some of us are someday going to come to life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I'm here to tell you this morning that those rumors that C.S. Lewis wrote about are true. You can come to life. You can come to new life, abundant life, eternal life. And that is the invitation of the cross. That is the invitation of Jesus, but you cannot do it without him. You need him, you need his forgiveness in order to receive it. There is no other way. It's that simple. And if I'm completely honest with you guys, I share this in the first service, I was thinking about it this morning. If I'm completely honest, that is the only thing I'm after every time I'm up here. That's the only thing I'm after. It's the only reason I do what I do. It's the primary reason I do what I do. I don't get up here. I don't study. I don't try to contextualize to share with you how the Bible's relevant just so that I can impress you with some of my knowledge. Okay? My wife should be laughing at that because she's like, it's not impressive, guys. Trust me. That is not why I want to come up here and communicate and defend Jesus. Do you want to know why I do it? It's because I hope that you will take him serious for long enough just to hear that a time is coming where every knee is going to bow. And you have to make a decision concerning him. Because your knees will bow. And some knees are going to bow in honor and worship for your king. And some knees are going to bow in begrudging submission and shame. And I don't want that for anybody. I do this so that perhaps you will listen long enough to hear that Jesus Christ died for your sins and the gift of your faith that you place in him is eternal life. Is that you can be a co-heir with Christ. I also believe that is ultimately the heart behind all of Hebrews. They just want people to get to that reality of what Jesus has done for them. So as we prepare to close this morning, I want to invite you to make a decision. Is he your king or is he not? Because truthfully, there's really no in-between. There can't be an in-between. So as I wrap up, I want to read one more quote from C.S. Lewis, where he puts this more perfectly and eloquently than I ever could. He says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I am ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. For a man who was truly merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, and you can kill him as a demon. 
or you can fall at his feet. Call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And I would also add, I don't think the letter of Hebrews does either. He is our risen king. I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads as we close in prayer this morning. But as we do, uh, I just want to ask you to be honoring to those around you because perhaps there's someone here this morning and you're feeling that call, you're feeling that tug. Maybe you have heard it for the first time and in your heart and mind you're responding and you're saying, I want to by faith accept Christ's death and resurrection. I want to be a co-heir with Christ. I just want to say, if you are feeling that this morning, what you're feeling is the presence of a risen Savior, of a living God, whose Holy Spirit is prompting you to do that. And if you accept Him, if you put your faith in Him, His Holy Spirit will reside with you through your life. So if you're here this morning and you want to make that decision with all your heads bowed, eyes closed, I just want to ask you to put your hand up this morning. I would love to pray with you. If you'd be so bold, maybe we could chat after. If you're watching this online in the future, if you want to uh, email me, ross at duncanchurch.com, I would love to talk with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much and we thank you for all that you have done. And we thank you, Lord, for, for the men and women who you continued to work in even after you returned to heaven in order to inspire them to write things like this that we glean from today. Lord God, may we take them and apply your word to our lives. And Lord, may we be, those of us who profess to know you, may we labor to love people in the hopes that at some point this week, we may get the opportunity to share our end goal. And that is just the truth that you died for us and you love us. Thank you so much for today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you guys so much for coming. I just want to say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.